Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing prayer and dependence upon God like a child. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, we'll begin our lesson. Let me open us up in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for this group and this opportunity to study your word. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit lead our discussion today as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke, guide our discussion, help each of us hear something that we need to hear and take away today and apply in our lives. Knowledge is great, but knowledge doesn't change us. It's when we actually apply it. And so I ask the Holy Spirit to please apply what we study and discuss today in a way that continues to change us so that people can see the change in our lives. We thank you for your son. Thank you for your love. You're just an amazing God. Thank you for everything you continue to give us and pour out on us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Luke chapter 18, and I'll just pick up right where we left off, chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them, this is Jesus, now Jesus was telling them a parable, and unlike the way he normally tells parables, he's going to right here in verse 1 tell us what the point of the parable is even before he gives it. He's telling them a parable to show that at all times, do you see that? At all times, they ought to pray and not lose heart. So what he's telling us is we are to pray all the time and not give up. And how many times do we pray for things where we then say, well, I guess he's not paying attention. He's asleep. God's focused on somebody else. I give up or he must not want to answer. God always answers our prayers, always. It's either yes, no, or wait. And sometimes we get a no, and you know, I hear people say all the time, yeah, I've been praying for this for years, and God's not answering my prayer. Well, are you feeling like he's telling you no? Yeah, but I'm praying for a yes. <laughs> How many times are we praying for a yes, and we get a no, and we say, well, he hasn't answered yet. Some of the best answers to prayers, and there's a country song about this, is some of the best answers to prayers are when he tells us no. He's got better plans for us. But I also want you to think about, this is where this verse really hits me, is the people that we're praying for. And I hope all of us have people that we pray for, for their salvation. They would come to faith. It might be a medical issue. It could be anything. But I hope that we all are praying for others, not just praying for stuff like, God, I kind of feel like I need a new boat. That's okay. And I'm sure he'd give me a no on that one. But are we truly praying for others? I think that's what he's really focusing on here is not to lose heart. Continue to pray. For whatever reason, that's part of the process that God designed. He wants us involved in his will. And we should pray that his will be done, but we should also pray continuously. And so let's read the parable and we'll come back and talk about it a little bit. He's going to tell this parable. He says, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Kind of sounds like a lot of politicians that we know about today. Sounds like a lot of judges that we see out there today. You know, they'll say what we want to hear so that they can get elected or appointed. But then they're going to do their own thing. This guy is a mess. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. So that's one character in the parable. Here's the other character. Verse 3, and there was a widow. Okay, so it's a widow. No husband. He had died. And from the language that's written here, she's in a pretty desperate financial condition. Okay, she's desperate. Usually Jewish women, once they lost their husband, if they didn't have a son to take care of them, they were in a pretty desperate situation. And apparently there's something going on here. She's coming to this judge because somebody's wronged her or something's going on. She's looking for justice. So there was a widow in the city and she kept coming to the judge saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Or your translation may say, give me justice. She's looking for justice. And for a while he was unwilling. So it looks like she keeps coming to the judge asking for justice but the judge doesn't even care about her at all. And by the way, the Old Testament required that people 
help and take care of widows and orphans. You can look at that in Exodus 22:22, Isaiah 1:17, Deuteronomy 27:19. But this guy, he doesn't care about anybody. That's what it says. He didn't respect man and he's not afraid of God. And by the way, let me just show you. I'll go over there and read it for you real quick. In 2 Chronicles verse 19, verses 6 through 7, it tells what the responsibility of judges were. I wish some of our judges and politicians would read these two verses. It says, And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking of a bribe. Boy, I wish our politicians and judges would read that and abide by that in any event. So this guy, he doesn't care about anybody except himself. So he doesn't fear God. It says for a while he was unwilling to even listen to her. But eventually, he changes his mind, and let's see why. But afterwards, he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection or give her justice, lest by continually coming to me she wears me out. And the literal translation of the original language here, wears me out, it really means unless she keeps hitting me under the eye, Meaning she's just going to keep hitting me, hitting me, wearing me out. You know, like you're up against the ropes, getting worn out. Eventually, he listens to her, but he's not doing it because he feared God. He's not doing it because he wants to try to do the right thing. This guy is a corrupt judge, like so many of the judges even at that time. And so many of our judges today, they have different agendas rather than real justice. But he relents because she was bothering him. What he's doing, he's actually only relenting to help himself. He doesn't care about her. Let's see what Jesus says about that in verse 6. He says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. You just heard it. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect, meaning believers, who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? So God does exercise patience and delays his wrath. We ought to be thankful for that. He delays his wrath and judgment against us as sinners until we can come to faith. So he extends mercy and grace to give all of us time to come to believe. Not everyone will eventually do that. But he says, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So Jesus may be referring, remember where we left off in Luke 17, he was talking about the kingdom. So he may also be talking about the second coming, his second coming. Will he find people faithful and, and you know, not giving up hope? This may indicate that there's not going to be that many believers that make it through the tribulation, that come to faith before his second coming. There may only be a small remnant of Jews who have come to faith and Gentiles who have come to faith who then move into the millennial kingdom. But he's also saying, are we going to be faithful? Do we continue to turn to God? Do we not give up? And I can tell you a personal story. I prayed for my father. I can't tell you how many years, years, decades. You know my story. I grew up in a Catholic home. I became a Christian at about 13 in seventh grade. But my family was still devout Catholic, and I prayed. I kept trying to explain to my family, look, it's not what you have taught me. It's not faith in Jesus Christ plus works and earn your way. And when you die, you don't know if you're going to end up in heaven or not. They'll let you know when you get there. And maybe if you were almost good enough, maybe you go to a place called purgatory. That's what I was taught. That's what they were taught. And what I really focused on with him as well as other family members is, look, at least get the grace thing right. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it's by grace that we've been saved. We have nothing to contribute to it. It's not based on our works so that we don't have anything to boast about. It is by faith alone. And I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and thank goodness I didn't give up. 
eventually, just not all that long ago, a couple of years ago, I think I told this group when it happened. He came to me and he used to say, Larry, I hear what you're saying and I believe the verses you're showing me. In fact, when I was showing him verses at one time early on, he was saying, where are you getting that? That's not what I was taught. And I go, I'm reading it right out of your family Bible. I always got his Bible to read the verses so he wouldn't think I had some strange translation. And eventually he called me one day and he said, Larry, I've been praying. I've been thinking about what you told me. I've been looking at these verses and I think you're right. Will you help me pray that simple prayer that you've been describing and telling me about? I want to get this right. And it was just like a weight lifted off my heart, knowing that he had now actually understood the true gospel of Jesus Christ and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't too long after that that he began then really having some memory problems. I share that with you. I still have other family members that I pray for daily. If any of you have people like that, don't give up. I think that's what Jesus is telling us. Don't give up. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. Keep praying for them. God has a different plan than we do. And I think sometimes, for me, I think some of that is even to help me mature in my faith, that I've got to trust God with this. There isn't anything I can do about it. I've got to trust God. He's got a plan. I trust God's plan. And what he wants me to do is keep praying and keep sowing seeds. So if that touches anybody that's here or on the phone or listening to the podcast, I hope you find that helpful. Just don't give up. That's what it says. Look in verse 1. He says, at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't give up. Okay, so let's move on. He's going to tell another parable. I'm in verse 9 now. And Jesus also told this parable, and look who he's speaking to here. To certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others as contempt. I think we're going to see more than likely this is Pharisees that he's talking about because his parable is going to mention a Pharisee. And that's how they viewed themselves. They trusted in themselves. They viewed themselves as righteous. They thought they were right with God because of what they did. They viewed, they obtained salvation through self-effort and doing all this religious stuff. They had Abraham's blood. And so I think that's probably the group he's talking to here. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt, meaning they despised them. So here's the parable. And we're going to see two different people, two complete different hearts in the way they approach prayer. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Remember, tax gatherers are viewed with contempt. They're hated. The Jews couldn't stand them because they would take a little money for themselves. They would collect what Rome required, but then they could also collect whatever else they wanted. And so they were taking from their fellow Jews and making themselves rich. So they hated the tax gatherers. They were despised. And yet the other person you see is a Pharisee. Think of a Pharisee as someone, again, who is very well respected. They're polar opposites. They're all about themselves. They think that they are righteous just because of all the religious stuff they do to bring attention to themselves. So Jesus is going to talk about the Pharisee first. Look what he says. This is how he prays. In verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. Okay, so he's not even praying to God. He's standing, again, at the temple to bring attention to himself. All right, and he's praying to himself, and he says, God, I thank thee that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer who's over here just down the way praying. I'm glad I'm not like that. So he's not even praying to God. He's basically sort of telling God, he's giving this speech, trying to declare to God how great he is. He's arrogant. He doesn't even think he needs God. He's describing all of his works that he thinks have gotten him his salvation. He's all about doing it on his own, his own self-adulation. He's done this on his own. He doesn't need God at all. He's self-made. He can do it himself. He thinks he's self-righteous, and he's glad that he's not like this tax collector. 
look what he says. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. So he's saying, I do all this great stuff. And by the way, fasting twice a week was way beyond what the Old Testament even required. So he's kind of patting himself on the back. Look at all I do. You know, I am a righteous, righteous guy. I'm glad I'm not like everybody else. Just calling attention to himself. So now let's look at the other guy. Verse 13. This is Jesus describing this. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. So this guy is so humble, uh, he's showing his humility, that he feels it's even unworthy to be in God's presence, basically. He doesn't even want to look up to heaven because he doesn't feel that he's worthy. And look what it says. It says he's beating his breast. That's a sign of really just kind of being overwhelmed with your guilt. He's beating his breast. He's showing where his heart is, that he knows that he's a sinner. He knows that he's evil. He's acknowledging his sin. And what does he say? He's actually praying to God. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's acknowledging that he's a sinner and he needs a savior. He needs help. And he knows his heart is the source of his evil. So what does Jesus say about him in verse 14? I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified, meaning saved, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Humbled, I think that can also mean they're going to face eternal judgment. And exalted, I think he's talking about eternal life. Remember, he was just in chapter 17 that we read last week talking about the kingdom. And this comes right after that. So he's saying, look, works don't get you into the kingdom. This Pharisee, he's saved by his faith and by the fact that he acknowledges that he's a sinner and he repents. He acknowledges, I need to go a different way. My heart needs to be changed. I need a savior. I need God to be merciful to me. And you know, it could be, we'll see when we get over to Luke 19 next week, we're going to see that there was the chief tax gatherer that he's going to talk about named Zacchaeus. So he may have even been using him as the example for this parable. So we'll see when we come back next week. But here we have two people, they both believed in God, but the difference is that the tax collector, he repented and he sought forgiveness from God. He had faith in God and he had faith that God would forgive him of his sins. And the Pharisee didn't think that he even needed to repent from anything. He sought really his salvation by his good works and by his self-efforts. And we see what Jesus said he won't even make it. He is not going to make it to have eternal life with Jesus Christ. So now let's go on to verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him. So they were bringing babies to Jesus in order that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them, the people who were bringing their children. Remember, children in that culture, they were the lowly. They didn't have any power. They didn't have any rights. And they were viewed that way because they hadn't yet done anything to really merit righteousness. They haven't shown devotion to God. They haven't shown that they even know who God is. They haven't been able to practice all these religious things that the Pharisees would do in public. And so they were viewed as just kind of a nuisance, that they were just in the way. They weren't observing these rituals, yet these parents were concerned for their children they were concerned for their salvation, and they wanted Jesus to bless them. And so let's see what Jesus says. Of course, the disciples are saying, keep the kids away. You know, Jesus has things to do. Don't let these children bother him. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 16, but Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to me and stop hindering them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. There's several things that we can take from this. First of all, I think he is continuing to talk about the kingdom of God, just like where we left off from last week in chapter 17. He's talking about the kingdom of God here. He's saying the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. Remember, children, they're dependent on others for everything. 
there's nothing they can do. They can't provide for themselves. They are dependent on others for everything. And that's how Jesus wants us to be, to be totally dependent on God rather than dependent on our self-efforts. That's who will inherit the kingdom. And I think this is also clear that Jesus is saying young children who don't have mental capacity yet to understand what it means to place their faith in Jesus Christ. If they die before they have that mental capacity, even kids that may grow up that still have special needs, people like my daughter who don't have the mental capacity to understand that they are going to go to heaven, that they are going to inherit the kingdom. They are children of God. And Jesus says, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I've taken you over there. I won't take the time today to go into this in detail with you again, but I don't want to pass up the chance to mention it if people haven't heard it. Second Samuel 12, 23. And this is where after David had had sex outside of marriage with Bathsheba, I won't go into all the details of how that came about, but when the child came, the child, as a result of the sin, the consequence of the sin is the child became very sick and died. And what King David says about that child, 2 Samuel 12, it says, But now he has died, talking about his son. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And so I think that's clear that young children, young infants, when they die, while we miss them, we're heartbroken because of it. In a way, that is just a fantastic, tremendous blessing. They go straight to heaven. They don't even have to go through all of this that we have to go through. I think these verses here, Jesus is reiterating that and just saying that it's little children. They will be in the kingdom. Verse 17, I'm going back over to Luke chapter 18. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. So this means the only way to obtain our salvation is by God's grace. We contribute nothing to it. If you think that you do, then I think this may be saying that you might not make it. You can't put God into a position because you think you've done a bunch of stuff that he now owes you your salvation. It just doesn't work like that. You got no verses that say that. You can't do something that then God owes you. I think you may be in for a rude awakening when you get there if that's what you believe. So let me go back now. We'll go into verse 18. He's going to give another story. And a certain ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? So this person who's asking him is elevating Jesus above other teachers, at least calling him a good teacher. And it says a certain ruler. So this is probably somebody high up, a religiously impressive man in the synagogue, perhaps, maybe somebody with some authority there. We don't know if it's a Pharisee or a Sadducee. I do want to point this out just to remind you. Remember, Sadducees don't believe in eternal life. And the reason they don't believe in eternal life is because there's no reference to resurrection of the dead in the first five books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch, in the Mosaic Law. And they happen to believe that then the other books in the Old Testament are really just commentary on the Pentateuch. And so since there's no reference to resurrection in the first five books, they don't believe in it. The Pharisees do believe in resurrection of the dead. I don't know if you've come across this. I've seen this several times in just ministering with people. There are some people who think that the four Gospels carry way more weight than the rest of the New Testament. Anybody ever run across somebody like that? Or some of you I see, like your Bible there, has red letters. And it's like, oh, but the red letters, that's the important stuff. The red letters are what Jesus actually said. You've got no verses to support that. This is all God's word, all of it, the entire book. There isn't one part more important than the other. And so don't fall into that trap. I'll leave that there. So we don't know who this is, but anyway, this is at least somebody who is asking Jesus, what do I have to do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says to him in verse 19, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
So I think Jesus is now trying to see if he truly thought Jesus was God. If so, would he be willing to obey God? So this guy, he's looking for, I think, what action does he need to take to earn his salvation? And I think that may be what's behind as we continue to read. I think that's going to come out. What does he need to do to contribute or to earn his salvation? Jesus continues in verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus basically lays out five of the Ten Commandments that are in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And these five that he's talking about are really five of the commandments that tell us how we are to treat others. I think what he's also saying is, because the guy asked, what do I need to do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, do these commandments. And so he's really talking to this guy on the basis of his legalism, because that's really where he's coming from. And Jesus is basically saying, you know what? If you want to earn your salvation, do these, but you got to do them perfectly, all right? You got to do every one of them perfectly. Let me just show you a verse that'll back that up. It's over in James 2.10, which basically says, if you've messed up in just one area, you're guilty of it all. I'm in James, I'll just go over there. James 2, verse 10, it says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So it's impossible. It's impossible to keep everything. But let's see how this ruler actually responds. In verse 21, he says, All these things I have kept from my youth. Yeah, really? So this guy is a prideful, self-righteous person. He thinks he has no sin because of all his religious legalism. He's really just a self-deceived hypocrite. His heart's a mess. He's certainly unwilling to confess that he has any sin. And the law was given to us to show that we are sinners, that it's impossible to save ourselves. You can't be justified by just trying to keep the law. It's impossible. Yet this person believed he was righteous because of the way he's lived his life. He says he's done it all since his youth. He's been perfect. Verse 22, let's see how Jesus responds to him. And when Jesus heard this, Jesus said to him, well, one thing you still lack. Huh, here it comes. And he's going to go right at where this man's heart really is. This is where he's weak. Jesus says, sell everything that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus knows this guy valued what he had more than anything else. He certainly did not place God first in his life. I think as I read this, I began asking my own questions. Like, do we trust our possessions more than God? Are we trying to put our trust maybe really both in our possessions and in God? We're kind of trying to walk the tightrope. Like, I sure am glad I have all these things. I have some money in the bank, or I have this, or I have this house. And my question to myself and to everyone listening, could we live without everything we have? I mean, do we trust God that much? Do we recognize that everything we have, God gave us, and it could be gone tomorrow? And are we okay with that? I think that's what Jesus is really getting to. This guy, his heart was more focused on what he had than on God. And that's what was going to keep him. You see, he says, Give it away and then come follow me. Come trust me. Jesus found this man's weak spot. Let's look. It says, when the man had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He valued his own possessions more than eternal life. And actually, when we go over and read this account in Matthew 19, 22, and Mark 10, 22, what we see is the man actually walked away. In verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. First of all, let me point out that being wealthy is not a sin. I mean, God has blessed a lot of people. He has blessed my life unbelievably. 
There are many people in the Bible. You can look at Job, David, Abraham, Joseph. I mean, these were some of the, Solomon, these were some of the wealthiest people of all time. God blessed them with that. So it's not wealth that is the sin, but it's where your heart is. And this man loved his possessions more than really wanting to follow Jesus and have eternal life. The problem, I think, what Jesus is talking about, and we've all seen this, is what wealth can cause. I like to call it CEO disease because I see it with so many CEOs. You kind of get to that pinnacle and you start believing, I mean, how great am I? You know, self-made man. Look what I did. What happens, and I think we all have seen people that this happens to, they get so comfortable and they get so reliant on themselves that they don't need God anymore. And that's what happened to this man. He was so comfortable that he didn't feel like he needed God anymore. His possessions and what he had were more important. He could rely on himself. You've heard me say this before. I've never read an article where somebody won the lottery and then placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the blessing. It just doesn't go that way. It's usually when you're in the worst place and when you're in your deepest trial that you realize, I'm helpless. I'm helpless. I need God. Look at the history of the Jewish people, the history of Israel. They'd have times of great prosperity, everything would be going great. And what did they do? They'd start worshiping idols. They'd turn away from God. Then things would get really, really bad. Oh, they'd cry out, oh, we need help. We need help. You know, send us a judge. Help restore this. And then things would get better again. And then they'd not focus on God anymore. Same thing, cycle over and over and over again. And I think we can all look at people who we've seen that happen to. I've seen it happen to a lot of CEOs, a lot of people in other leadership positions that they get there and it's like, I don't need God. They don't go to church anymore. They don't need, you know, they got it made. So again, there's nothing wrong with having money, but when that becomes what we're worshiping instead of worshiping God and being a steward of what God has given us, in order to help build his kingdom and bring glory to him, not to ourselves. That's where he's talking about it's really tough for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God because they become self-reliant and they don't think they need God anymore. And when the Jewish people heard this story that Jesus is telling, they were shocked because they viewed wealth as really God's blessing. It's like God had found favor with you and giving you, and giving you all this wealth. It was a sign to them that you were assured of salvation because this is evidence on earth that, man, you're a special person and God's blessing you. And because of that, you've got your salvation. And they saw the poor and people that had infirmities like the blind people and the leprous people that we've talked about. And when bad things happened to people, they viewed that as God was frowning on them and judging them. And that those types of people, the reason they were outcast is because they didn't believe they were going to have salvation. That was demonstration of God saying, you're in deep trouble. You've got too much sin in your life, and now it's being manifested in this suffering or poverty. It was a sign of God's judgment. But what Jesus is saying is, look, the rich people, they can't buy their way to salvation. In fact, you can't even come to God and try to ask for God's salvation on your own terms. It's interesting because there's so many denominations out there and religions other than true gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ, that it's like you want to do something. Inside of us, there's something in us that we want to contribute to it. You know, it's like we want to earn this. We want to be part of it. But as soon as you're doing that, you're basically saying Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection didn't quite get the job done. You know, I mean, Jesus is great. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. But gosh, he didn't quite get it done for my salvation. I got to do a little something. I got to do a little something, you know, because I want to contribute to it. I want to be part of this deal. That's not the gospel. And yet so many people believe that. It's so sad. Satan has just twisted it. It's so sad. There are no verses, as you can see, even what we're reading today. And we've got to be careful that we don't get so comfortable that we start holding on to the things that we've been blessed with 
we hold on to that and worship that more than our personal relationship with the Lord. And rather than holding on to that as a safety net, look at those blessings and say, okay, Jesus, how do you want me to steward this? What you've given me, how can I be a good steward of this? Sure, some of it is for your family, but when you become focused on just amassing wealth, amassing wealth and wanting to be somebody because of it, you're messed up. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And so let's look at the listeners who were there with Jesus and they hear this story. Look at their response. They go, well, wait a minute. They're thinking, we thought wealth was a sign of God's blessing and salvation. They say, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? I mean, how do we get saved? We thought that's the way. And Jesus' response is, in verse 27, he said, the things impossible with men, in other words, there's nothing you can do to earn it, forget it, can't happen. The things impossible with men are possible with God. So only God can give us our salvation and change our heart. We've got nothing to contribute to our salvation other than acknowledging that we are a helpless sinner and we need God's grace. And so Peter, he's always the bold one, typically putting his foot in his mouth, but he speaks up and he goes, well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He says, wait a minute, Jesus, we've left our own homes and we've followed you. What about us? Because we've left stuff, but are we in trouble? How are we going to get to heaven? In verse 29, Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times as much at this time, so in the present time and in the age to come. I'm really sure that he's not talking about people who have divorced their wives. Remember, Peter was married. I think he's talking about people who are away from their family and their loved ones for purposes of ministry and ministering to others, that you're going to be blessed by doing that. He's saying that really, unlike the rich man, all who are willing to give everything to Jesus, they're going to have eternal life and they're going to have many blessings in this life while we're alive here. So we need to put our wealth under God's control and realize all that we have is from him and it could be gone tomorrow. And don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Trust God. That's what I think he is saying here. I'm just about running out of time. So let me close out this verse 31 through 34. Jesus is now really going to reveal that he has the full knowledge of what God's plan is, that God the Father, that God has a plan for our redemption. None of this came as a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I came to save everyone and now I'm going to die this horrible death. It did not come as a surprise and it didn't follow a path that was unintended or that Jesus wasn't fully in control of. For those of you taking notes, let me just give you some great Old Testament prophecy that prophesizes this plan that Jesus is going to talk about here as he shares it with them. You can go look at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. You can go look in the Psalms. You can look at Psalm 16:10. You can look at Psalm 22. You can look at Psalm 34:20. That's chapter 34, verse 20. Chapter 69, verse 21 and Psalm 110, verse 1. And then there's a whole bunch in Zechariah. You can look at chapter 9, verse 9. You can look at chapter 11, verse 12. You can look at chapter 12, verse 10, as well as chapter 13, verse 7. So he's going to lay out the plan. It says in verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished from some of those verses that I just gave you. So Jesus is now nearing the end of his final journey to Jerusalem. And the twelve were headed with Jesus to the Passover in Jerusalem. And Jesus is laying out the way this is going to go down, the way this plan is going to come about. It says in verse 32, For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them 
and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So they didn't understand that Jesus would be the final sacrificial lamb to pay the debt, the final debt for sinners. That would satisfy God in the judgment that we're all really due because of our sin. So that would then bring an end to the Jewish sacrificial system, which is so interesting to me how people of Jewish faith, they don't even have a temple to go to to even do these sacrifices. They don't do sacrifices anymore. I don't understand how they can just be so blind as to what was going on here. But in any event, the disciples can't even comprehend a dying Messiah. Remember, they're awaiting a conquering king. That's what they're looking for. I think what's happening here that we read in 34, remember they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Pentecost hasn't come yet. And it takes the Holy Spirit to bring this understanding to them. Verse 35, And it came about that as he, Jesus, was approaching Jericho, so Jericho is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem and really about five miles from the Jordan River, So they're getting close now to Jerusalem. A certain blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a multitude going by, he began to inquire what this might be. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth, remember that's where Jesus grew up, was passing by. And the blind man called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So this is a messianic title. It shows that this blind man thought Jesus was the Messiah. He's referring to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. And those who led the way were sternly telling this blind man to be quiet. But again, remember, Jesus said, don't give up about praying. And so this man isn't even giving up and trying to approach Jesus. He keeps coming. It says, he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So it shows that he knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed mercy from God for his salvation. And he couldn't be silenced. He wanted both physical and spiritual healing. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he had come near, he questioned him. Now, a couple of things. Let me point out. There's some other accounts, like you can go look at Matthew 20, verse 30. It says that there were two blind men. That may or may not be this same account. The thing that's a little tricky is in this account, it says they were on their way to Jericho. And in that account, they were leaving Jericho. And in that account, there were two men. So not sure if it's the same or different. I just want you to be aware of that. That's not clear. But when you look at Mark, Mark 10, 46, it even has the name, one of the two is named Bartimaeus. It may be that Luke is only focusing on this one. Don't know. It may be different accounts. Remember, blindness was very common among the Jews at that time. It was very common. And they were all viewed as outcasts, as I was talking about. People with blindness, people with those kinds of afflictions, they were viewed by the Jews as being judged by God and out of the will of God. So they were outcast. Since Mark actually mentions this guy by name, he may, by the time Mark wrote his gospel, may have been even well known to the church by that time, but we don't know. One thing interesting about the account in Mark, though, in Mark 10, 49 through 50, it adds that when Jesus called him, I think this is fascinating, This guy's blind, but when Jesus called him, he throws his cloak aside. Now, he's an outcast. He's poor. That's probably the only coat that he had. He's blind. When he throws it aside, if he stays blind, he's not going to be able to find it, right? So he has such faith. When Jesus calls him, he throws his cloak to the side and comes to Jesus. This is like, get rid of all your possessions and follow me. Correct. It is. Yep. He he threw the only cloak that he had off to the side. It shows that this guy has genuine faith and he's willing to obey. Jesus said, come. He's willing to obey and he's willing to abandon what he has to come follow Jesus. And he even calls him Lord, which also is an indication that he's affirming his belief that Jesus is God. He comes to him and as soon as he gets to Jesus, Jesus questions him in verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to receive my sight. 
He knows Jesus has the power over all diseases. In verse 42, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And when we read maybe the same or different account in Matthew 20, 34, Matthew adds that Jesus touched his eyes, but it was an instant healing. In the original Greek translation here, where it says, has made you well, it actually means saved. It's more than just a curing of blindness. It's a spiritual healing that this is talking about. So he's saved, but he's only saved by his faith. And look what happens in verse 43. And immediately he received his sight and began following Jesus, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So it shows he had true saving faith. And after his conversion, he gave glory to God. But unfortunately, many who even saw this, and they may at first give praise to God, they still won't believe in Jesus, as we will see later in Luke's gospel. They won't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he performed the miracle. You never see any disputes about the miracle. Let me just close by saying what I take away. How can I apply this? We need to examine our own hearts. Are we willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? Or is our belief really more superficial? Are we still kind of tied up and kind of have our little blankie of whatever we got that makes us feel secure? Do we truly trust God with everything? And are we willing to give everything up? Not that we have to, but do we worry about it, I guess I would say. We're to pray all the time, and it shows our faith and dependence on God, particularly when we're praying for others. And we ought to all have people that we're praying for, that they'll eventually come to salvation. And we shouldn't give up. That's what he says. He says, we ought to pray and not lose heart. Don't give up. Just keep praying for them. That's what he wants us to do. We should be like little children. We should be like people that we're so dependent on God. We're not dependent on ourselves. We're totally dependent on God. And we should realize everything that we have, our jobs, our money, our possessions, our homes, everything we have, even our relationships, our friendships, this group, this was all given to us by God. Everything we have is from God. And the question is, what are we doing with it? What are we doing not only with our possessions, but what are we doing with our relationships, our relationships with our family, our friends? God has us here to do a job. He's given us a commandment, go make disciples. Are we doing what God asks us to do? The reason we're left here is to help build the kingdom. Finally, I'd say we are to confess all of our sin. And if you're sitting here right now and saying, I've done that, I know I've confessed all my sin. I will tell you, why don't you ask God to put on your heart what other sins that you haven't confessed? I have found myself doing even more of that lately. Just asking God, put on my heart those sins that I have, after I've confessed my sin, what other sins, bring them to light, put them on my heart. I want to confess them. I need both physical and spiritual healing. I want you working in and through me. I want to be a good steward. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know I'm not doing real well in that. I want to do better. Not because I'm earning my salvation. I want to do it because you told me to do it. And when God says, go do it, go do it. And so I just ask you to pray. Bible tells us he'll give us the will and the way to do what he wants us to do. That's over in Philippians. I think it's in Philippians 2. If you maybe don't have the will, ask God to give you the will. You know, maybe there's something that you're hesitant. You know he's asking you to go do it or to speak to somebody or do something, but you really don't want to do it. Just start with, God, I'm not willing, but I know you can give me the will. Give me the will and then give me the way. Any other questions or comments, any thoughts or how we might apply this? I love the insight you gave about the uh, children because when I think about verses talking about the children, I always looked at it as the innocence of the children and less about their status, about not being able to provide works to gain favor with God. And that, that to me was a big um, turner for today. Yeah, I actually have a friend who they just had their first child who 
was just born and has serious, serious, serious medical issues. In fact, having some heart surgery right now as we speak that'll probably go on for about five hours. And I was talking with him about these verses, even about King David. And I said, look, we can't understand if this child doesn't make it, your heart is going to be broken. I know that. And I tried to explain also that if that does happen, if they don't make it through, they're going to heaven. Your heart will be broken because of it. But you have raised someone who has now gone straight to heaven. And you ought to take tremendous joy in that. For whatever reason, that was God's plan. And I know that's not easy. That is really difficult. And this person has such faith. And they knew there were major problems early in the pregnancy. And they chose to carry the child all the way through and leave it in God's hands. And just seeing the faith that he and his wife have had through this whole process, that they're totally trusting in God. And they understand that, that no matter what happens, that child, if they don't make it through this surgery or even the recovery, if they die, they're going to heaven. There'll be tremendous pain. But to see their faith is just, oh, it's just so encouraging to me. It's hard to watch. It's sad to watch. And we have hurt. But to see their faith and other people see their faith, what an impact they can have on others. And we can't always understand why, but part of God's plan. Jesus said he came to bring peace. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to have trials. In fact, he promises we are going to have tribulation. We are going to have tough times. But you know what? That's when he does great work if we'll allow it to happen both for us as well as like the couple that I was describing. Others seeing the way they're handling that situation, that is testimony to everyone who's watching. So he wants to use our difficult times not only for us, to bring us closer in our relationship to him, but also to draw others as they see the peace that we can have even through the difficult time. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.